When you walked in, you got a, a bulletin, and in that bulletin is a handout. It looks like this, and I'd encourage everybody to pull it out. At the top of it, there's a statement that I want you to respond to as we get started today, and that statement is my experience with grief. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about a season or moment in your life where you experienced grief. And some of you are like, I've got a lot. Just pick one. And then I want you to write down a couple different adjectives to describe that season, and we're going to give you some mood music to fill that out with. So take about 15 or 20 seconds to do that. The reason that I asked you to write that down is that throughout this series, I'm hoping that even if we're not in the season that we're talking about today, you can at least mentally and emotionally go back there. And for me, I did that this week as I was preparing, and I went back to my my junior year of high school. Um, It wasn't that many months before 9-11 happened uh, that I remember waking up Um, to the news that one of my best friends had died in his sleep. His name was Jamin. And Jamin and Jason and I were inseparable all throughout high school. We went to different schools, but we worked together, went to the same church, and we were always together. And Jamin struggled with seizures. Uh, One night, he had one while he was laying face down. Uh, Jamin weighed about 250 pounds, and he literally suffocated into his pillow. And when his alarm went off that morning to go to band practice, he played the saxophone. His mom heard the alarm go off again and again and again and went in and she found her son. And I can remember the feeling in those days. I, I had buried a great-grandparent. I'd been to funerals for people in my church. But it was the very first time that grief had really come home for me. And I had to face that and navigate that and, and go throughout the rest of my high school career without Jamin there. And there was moment after moment after moment that you just said, this just doesn't seem right because he's not here with us. You see, grief is like that. And for many of us, grief is a, an experience that, that we have in a a season of life, and yet it becomes a a time in which our relationship with God gets tested, not in terms of just the questions we ask about God, but the connection we share with him. In this series we're calling Life with God, we're challenging one another about what does it mean to live life with God in seasons that aren't just always spring and summer in seasons that are more like fall and winter too. And our vision that we're trying to share with one another about life with God is that God wants to walk with us through all of those seasons. And last week we started this series and we talked about the fact that many times what limits our life with God in difficult seasons like that is the vision we have of our relationship with God. And many of us are living a life with God that that looks like one of these pictures. It's this life under God where we're trying to constantly keep God happy because he's this angry dictator that lives on a hair trigger. And if we ever do anything wrong, he's going to rain down fire on us. And others of us, we're just kind of too busy for God. We're living life over. God kind of have life figured out. 
Others of us are really captivated by this sense of purpose and mission, and we're going to do all these good things for God. And others of us are, are merely turning to God to get something from him when we're in crisis or in need. God is really there to do our bidding like a, a butler or a vending machine. And yet, all throughout this series, we've been talking about what does it mean for us to live life with God? Not under him, over him, for him, or from him, but with him. And today, I want to intersect that conversation with the subject and the experience of grief because I am convinced of the truth of this next statement, that grief can drive us from God or to God. Grief can drive us from God, or it can drive us to God. You see, it's not only the experience that we have with grief. If you think about the people that you're closest to and their experiences with grief, you can reflect on the fact that the same experience has led to different results for them. Even certain people who were close to my friend Jamin and went through grief over his death experienced that grief drive some of us from God and some of us to God. Some of us emerged with a stronger life with God and some of us emerged with a more tenuous life with God. And all throughout this series, we're looking at the center of the Bible for a guide or an example of how we can live life with God through things like grief and doubt, and anger. And this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 22. Psalm chapter 22. So if you have a physical Bible, you open it to the middle, it'll fall to Psalms or Proverbs. We're going to be in Psalm 22 this morning. And, And Psalm 22, we don't know a lot about the context of it. We don't know if David was going through the loss of a friend like I did. We don't know if he's going through the loss of a relationship like you may have. We don't know if he's going through the loss of a job. We assume he hasn't because he's the king. It's hard to lose that job outside of death. Um, But one of the things that that we, we discover in studying this passage that I discovered is that Psalm 22 is immediately followed by Psalm 23. You go, Scott, that that took you all week to work on? No, it's not just that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22. It's that they were used together. Many times you'll pull over to the side of the road because you see a funeral procession going by and cars with their lights on and police cars, cars that are escorting them. And in the ancient Hebrew day, when people were involved in a funeral procession, they sang aloud the words of Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. These were their funeral procession songs. And they offered them comfort as they went to bury someone. We'll deal with Psalm 23 in a couple weeks, but today we'll talk about Psalm 22. And like last week with Psalm 13, Psalm 22 is a lament. We said this last week that these 73 of the 150 Psalms are laments, that they included unguarded commentary before God, which is a a longer way of saying people let God have it with how things are going in their life. They accuse God of either doing something or not doing something. They recall who God has been in their past. They surrender their experience to God because he's the only one who can change it. And then they express gratitude for who they expect God to be. And this morning in Psalm 22, we're going to learn four things from what David learned about grief. And we'll begin in verse 1. These are David's words. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The first thing that David teaches us about grief is that grief often creates a longing to be near God. When we go through the kind of experience you wrote about at the very beginning, that experience often creates or increases the longing that we have to be near God. All throughout this chapter, David says words that, that communicate his longing to be near God. And in verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? In verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. In verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. See, one of the things we learn as we go through grief and we experience this longing for God is that grief feels worse when God seems distant. This probably has happened to you at some point in your life. You're going through a season of grief. You're going through a season or experience of loss, and that was bad enough on its own. But then when God feels far away, it's like he turned up the intensity of the pain. What hurt hurts even more when it seems like God is far off. And so David's prayer all throughout Psalm 22 is, God, don't be far off, be near to me. Never once in this psalm does David pray to God, solve my problem. Never once in this psalm does he pray, God, can you come and fix this? Can you change this? Can you sprinkle, sprinkle some, some magic fairy dust and make this as if it didn't happen? No, he says, God, be close to me. And this is why Jesus' experience on the cross is connected to this psalm. Some of you, when you read that first verse, you said, this sounds familiar. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 when he hung on the cross. And we read these words in Matthew 27, 46, where Jesus says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabnachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is hanging on the cross, sensing the weight of our sin. That's the grief and the pain. And feeling distant from God, so it gets even worse. And so in Aramaic, he says what David said in Hebrew, which we now read in English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David felt something hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus felt the exact same thing. A grief that created a longing for God and a deeply unsettling feeling when it seemed as if God wasn't nearer and nearer, but God was further and further away. If you're in the middle of a season of grief right now, one of the things I'm guessing you feel is a longing to be close to God and have him walk with you through this season. And one of the things that you will learn when you have an encounter with God in the midst of grief is that peace is not the absence of trouble, but it's the presence of Christ with us in the trouble. Peace is not the absence of trouble. 
Peace is the presence of God with us in the trouble. And that's why I can't stand up here and tell you that the thing that caused you grief is going to be undone by God today or tomorrow or the next day. Because that's not the the story that we read here in Psalm 22. David's grief-causing struggle was not undone because of his prayer. What we will see today is that in his longing for God, David ultimately experienced peace in the midst of the trouble because he experienced the presence of God. And that's my prayer for you. Not that God removes the difficulty from your life, but that God joins you in the middle of the difficulty because that is the definition of peace. God at your side. David continues in verse 3. He says these words. He says, yet, after saying, God, why are you so distant? He says, yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and in you our fathers trusted. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. He's recalling who God was and what he did. He says, to you they cried, and, and they were rescued, and in you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But me, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let, let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for God delights in him. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you were I cast at my birth, and from my, weather, my mother's womb you have been my God. The second thing we learn from David is that grief confuses our emotions. Grief confuses our emotions. If you're like me, when you read those few verses, you felt like you were listening to someone who was extremely confused. First, he's praising God. Then he's a worm, you know. Then he trusts God to deliver him. And then he's got hopelessness that God is going to deliver him. David seems all over the place. And that should comfort some of us because when we're in grief, we're all over the place too. I mean, for some of you, you're going through grief today. The moments you're having here at church are going to be moments of hope and encouragement. And, and by 1.30 this afternoon, it's going to be as if you weren't here. Some of you saying about the always nature of God's presence and deliverance. And by this evening, you're going to be moving from always to never. God, you never come through for me. God, you're never there. And one of the reasons I love the scriptures is they give us an accurate understanding of what life with God looks like because when we're going through grief, we're all over the place. High and low and up and down and happy and sad and and human. And what happens to David is that David's view of himself is even twisted. He says, I'm a worm. He's all over the place. He has all sorts of emotions, and he doesn't see or perceive clearly, and we don't perceive or, or see clearly when we're grieving, when we're emotionally spent. Maybe, like me, you've said these words before. I know all this stuff, but that's not how I feel. I know all this stuff. Like, I know all these words about God and who he is, but that's not how I feel right now. And in terms of the way that your brain works, If you're feeling one way and your belief 
is second, your feelings are going to win because in your brain process to get to the rational brain, you have to go through the gut feeling section of your brain. And so those feelings are going to win and rule the day. This is what happened in my life. A few years ago, I went into the office of my coworkers and I was complaining about some, some situation and I was really frustrated and and this coworker was a really astute person. She was wise. She started asking me some questions. She said, Scott, how are you sleeping? And I was like, um, I guess not very well. How much caffeine are you drinking? And I said, too much. Um, how's this week been going? It's not been a good week. She said, is it any wonder that you can't perceive things clearly when you're not in a good place? She said, I think you should put off this decision about what to do until you get to a better place. And many of you that are going through grief, you're facing large decisions. And one of the difficulties of facing large decisions when you're going through grief is that your emotions are confused and you can't actually see clearly. David wasn't a worm. In Psalm 139, he says that God made him and knit him together and God knows every piece of who he is. But in Psalm 22, because of his grief, he couldn't see those things. So I want to encourage you to be careful making assessments and decisions when you're grieving. To be careful making decisions and assessments when you're grieving. I want you to be cynical about yourself. I don't ever really encourage cynicism. As a recovering cynic, it's not a a good thing for your future. But when you're going through grief, you need to be cynical about your ability to see things clearly because your grief clouds your emotions. And if you know someone who's going through grief, you may need, like my friend, to assist them to see that they may not be seeing clearly. And that's why David's words are so encouraging to me, because it reminds me that even though God sees clearly, I may not. And even though God will give me wisdom in the future, right now I may not be able to handle that wisdom because I'm overwhelmed. And if you say, man, I really feel bad about that because I want to be able to say things, see things clearly, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you're human, and it impacts all of us. One, one of the most uh, telling historical examples of this is the life of C.S. Lewis. Lewis is one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, and he wrote books like Mere Christianity and The Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. It's a great book about suffering and pain and why God allows those things and how he works through him. But after writing The Problem of Pain, he met a woman named Joy. He fell in love for the first time. He married Joy, and then Joy became extremely sick. And ultimately, Joy died. And after Joy died, he wrote a different book, Not the Problem of Pain, but the title of his next book was called A Grief Observed. He wrote about pain as a theory over here. He wrote about grief from personal experience. And about 25 years ago, they made a movie about this story called The Shadowlands, and Anthony Hopkins played C.S. Lewis. And in this scene, he communicates to me what I think many of us have experienced firsthand. Watch this video. Could we have a word together after Yes, sir. Evening, Jack. Yeah. I wasn't going to come, but then I thought I would. Life must go on. I don't know that it must, Harry, but it certainly does. I'm sorry, Jack. Thank you, President. We're all deeply sorry, Jack. Thank you, President. Anything I can do? Yes, sir. Just don't tell me 
Let's hope for the best, that's all. Only God knows why these things have to happen to God knows, but does God care? Of course. We see so little here. We are not the creator. No, no. We're the creatures, aren't we? We're the, we're the rats in the cosmic laboratory. I've no doubt that the experiment is for our own good, but uh, it still makes God the vivisectionist, doesn't it? Jack. No! Won't do. It's this bloody awful mess, and that's all there is to it. I'm sorry. I am sorry for his first. He's not fit company tonight, that's all. This lesson doesn't come from David, it comes from Lewis. And that lesson is this, that grief often produces anger and the opportunity to sin. Grief often produces anger and with it the opportunity to sin. See, one of the things I think we don't talk about enough in the context of grief is anger. I can remember the, the days that followed, I was so angry at God for taking Jamin. He was the glue that held that family together. Jamin's dad had been a pastor and through a series of events had lost that dream, become a school teacher, and, and their family was going through grief, and Jamin lit up every room he walked into. He was just a beacon and a fountain of joy. And when you walked into their home, it wasn't that they were just grieving the loss of a son. It was that joy had left the room. And I said, God, why? Why would you do that? See, grief so easily leads into anger, and David didn't have the five-stage grief process that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross gave us. But if he did, he would know that denial leads to anger, leads to bargaining, leads to depression, leads to acceptance. And if you've got an experience with grief, you probably have an experience with anger too. And what you need to know is that anger in and of itself is not a sin. Jesus was angry when he turned over the tables that had turned the house of God into a prophet center. God was angry when his people had abandoned him to worship lesser gods. Anger is not the sin. But anger provides an opportunity for us to sin. That's why Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin. Literally in the Greek, it's three words. Be angry and not sin. It's this idea that anger and sin are different things. It's not the anger that's the sin, it's the sin that comes from and through the anger. Many of us know from personal experience how quickly anger can become violence. How quickly anger can become wrath. How quickly selfish anger can hurt others. How quickly anger from within us can turn into words that wound others. Anger can lead us to even question God's character. 
Is God good? Is God holy? Does God have any idea what he's doing? And see, even in the the book that precedes Psalms, the book of Job, we see that, that Job only begins to get close to sin when he begins to intimate that God is not good. It's not a sin to be angry and frustrated at God, but it is a sin to begin to suggest that God is not good and is not holy. That's where God says to Job, were you there when I created everything you see? Were you there when I spoke the world into existence and I put breath in man's mouth? And in the same way we discussed last week, I want to remind you that just as unexpressed doubt is toxic, repressed anger is toxic too. And that's why if you're going through grief, you need to know that just suppressing and repressing your anger is the worst thing you could do. Because anger will eat you alive and it will become a ticking time bomb that explodes shrapnel on others. And the truth is, if you're really honest, some of you in this room and some of you who are watching online, you are angry with God. You're really mad at God for what he's done or not done. And you jump when Lewis screams no. But you know that no. When a well-meaning Christian friend tried to recite to you a platitude or cliche or Bible verse, you screamed no! Because that wasn't what you needed. You were angry at God. And no Hallmark card was going to fix that. And repressing that anger is not going to help either. And what I want you to know is that today you can be angry with God. Not just at him, but with him in your anger. And holding it all together and repressing it will continue to put off that encounter with God where he can transform it. And sometimes what has to happen is you have to let yourself have a breakdown in order to find a breakthrough. Some of you who have been repressing and holding all this anger within you, you need to have a breakdown where it just comes out because once it comes out, it can be healed and transformed. But as long as you're in denial about it, it can't be changed. David concludes Psalm 22 with these words that I think should be hopeful for us, even if they seem beyond our current experience today. David says, Deliver my soul from the sword, God, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You, God, have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You who fear God, he says, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction, nor has he hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. 
That should be a hopeful word for some of you today who are crying out to God that God does hear you. And then David concludes, but the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. He says, may your hearts live forever. The final lesson from David is that grief leads us into an encounter with God. Grief leads us to an encounter with God. Now we can run from that encounter. I said in the beginning, grief either drives us from God or to God. We can run from that encounter. We can say, God, I want nothing to do with you because I'm mad at you and you didn't do what I thought you should. But we will have an encounter nevertheless. Even in in Jesus's first public sermon that we have a record of, the contents, he said this in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn for the reason of their mourning will be taken away. He doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn for their their mourning will be turned to dancing in 2.5 seconds flat. No, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And one of the things that I can tell you from that season of mourning the, the loss of my friend Jamin, the first time I really had to deal with grief in my life, is that I watched myself and each of my friends have profound encounters with God. And we discovered, what I pray you discover, is that we can feel closest to God in the middle of our darkest hour. It doesn't mean that there's not a reason for pain anymore. It doesn't mean that there's not a reason for grief. What it means is that in the midst of our darkest hour, we can feel closest to God. And the irony is that so many times the sense of God's closeness that we want comes packaged in an experience that we would never ask for. I doubt that any of you, if given the chance, would ask for the experience you described at the beginning of this message. Yep, God, give me that. I'll take that one, you know, over everything else. But in the midst of that experience, you may find the very connection and presence of God that you've longed to know. And so will you reject the package? Or will you receive the gift that lies within it? I want to talk about some next steps with you this morning, some things that I think will help you as you process through this message. The first thing, and this is not on your list, is that next week we're talking about joy. So for those of you who think this is the most depressing series ever, um, with, with doubt and grief, we're moving to joy next week, so please come back. Um, so this is, not, this is not all winter and fall. It's, it's good things too. The first thing I want to encourage you with is I want you to take your grief and anger to God. I want to encourage you to take your grief and anger to God. And the same thing we said with doubt last week is that we're so tempted to take our grief to people who A, can do nothing about it, and B, who can't be the presence of God to us. And we have this, this lament form all throughout the Psalms that's a reminder that we can take our honest frustration and anger to God And yet what's going to transform that is this S word. And it's not a four-letter word, but for a lot of us, we hate using it. And it's the word surrender. 
This is a very non-American word. We don't like this word. But until you surrender that anger to God, it won't be the place where you experience the miracle God wants to work there. Because you're holding it like this. And in the same way, I can't give you what my hands are clenched around. You can only take it when I open my hands up. When we surrender to God, God can take what we only saw as something terrible and he can't transform it into what he wants to do through it. Even that video you saw today that some of you gave you hope that you could have an honest conversation with God, that only happened because Lewis was honest about his emotions in that season. I want to remind some of you today that when we come to the end of ourselves, we often find the beginning of God. And when you come to that place where you can surrender that grief and that anger, or at least open your hands up a little bit, when you have that breakdown where you just let it all out, when you finally become honest with God about what you've been repressing deep within yourself, then and only then will you find the beginning of a new experience with God. I heard someone say last week, what is God's address? It's the end of our rope. When we come to the end of our own effort and achievement, we find God. So one, take your grief and anger to God. Second, leave it there. Leave it there. There are a lot of us that are good at letting God have it and taking things to him. But what we do is we take it, we give it to God, we pick it up and we keep going. There's a saying in our culture, take it or leave it. It's not take it or leave it. It's take it and leave it. Some of us are really good at taking things to God, and then when we're done letting him have it, we keep carrying it with us, like some luggage or some baggage. And the reminder here from David is it's one thing to take it to God, it's another thing to leave it with him and trust that he will do something with it. I want us to not just be good takers, I want us to be good leavers too. Because sometimes the continual struggle with a place in our life, whether it's grief or not, we've moved on from grief here for a second, we're talking about other things. Some of us are really good at taking it to God, but we will only experience change when we become good at surrendering it and leaving it with him. And once we leave it with him, it's a sign that we actually trust him with it. If you keep taking it to God and leaving with it yourself, what that means is you trust yourself more than God. And when you begin leaving it with him, that's a sign that your trust has shifted from yourself to him. And then number three, I want to challenge you to be patient and embrace God's grace. Be patient and embrace God's grace. We read these Psalms as if they were written in one sitting, as if the people who wrote them got there in one day. 
And most of these psalms were either written over a period of time, where there's time between verse 3 and 4, or they were written reflecting back on a time that has passed. And so when you read David and go, that's awesome, Scott, that he could get to the place where he could take it and leave it to God. But I'm not there yet today. Well, guess what? He may not have been there the day that he wrote verse 1. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he got there eventually. And so you need to be patient with yourself and embrace God's grace and remember that God is more patient with you than you are. God is more patient with you than you are. And so allow him to be with you moving through this season and allow yourself to receive the grace that he died on the cross to produce. The goal is not to use less and less grace. The goal is to recognize every place where we need God's grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message from David that you want to be with us in seasons of grief. And that sometimes the relationship we want with you comes in a package that we would naturally and in a knee-jerk way reject. God, none of us would ask for the grief that we've either experienced or are experiencing. And yet, in your hands, it can be the very place where we have a life-changing encounter with you. Where we experience your grace and patience in a way we never have before. And so my prayer today is not that you would remove or undo the circumstances that have produced grief in the lives of my friends. My prayer is that you would be powerfully with them. That they wouldn't run from the grief but they would run to you. And that they would find the life with you that they've always wanted, even in the midst of a circumstance they didn't plan for or expect. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.